lesson. So this afternoon we turn to the first in a cycle of discursive meditations, actively using our imagination, intelligence, memory, to bring about a shift, transformation in the mind. And we'll start, of course, with the first of the four measurables. And in fact, there's a very meaningful sequence in the order, coming from loving-kindness to compassion, empathetic to any equanimity. So it's very, very good to start with the first, loving-kindness. And according to the teachings of the Buddha, it's very good in terms of cultivating loving-kindness to begin with oneself. And this we find both in the early recorded, recorded teachings of the Buddha in the Pali Canon, but also in the Mahayana. So developing loving-kindness for oneself should never be conflated with or confused with self-centeredness or self-cherishing. But in fact, as Shantideva says, if you don't reflect upon the benefits of bodhicitta for yourself, then why would you ever develop bodhicitta for anybody else? So there, quite clearly, he's embracing the notion that we really, it's meaningful. It's in fact crucial to deeply care about ourselves and do so in a wise fashion. So we'll begin with the cultivation of loving-kindness directed to ourselves. And there will be a format to the meditation that we are about to follow, posing four different questions. But if there are, and I haven't counted, let's say, there's, let's say there are 38, 39, including myself, 39 people in the room, there will be 39 very distinct, unique meditations going on. In other words, the content, how, the, how, how you fill the meditation. I'll give you a format, but kind of the juice. I'll give you glasses, but what you pour into the glasses, that will be yours and it will be unique for each person. So we'll pursue, be pursuing four questions in the first of these. I'm not going to talk about it much, but just to give you a hint. is to envision, to bring to mind your own sense of what would bring you a true sense of well-being and happiness. This whole cultivation of loving-kindness for oneself in a way runs very much against the grain or the tendency of modernity in the sense that modernity is so focused outwards. So focused outwards. I was hearing His, His Holiness Dalai Lama speaking just about a week ago in Hamburg and it was commenting about modernity, that the news is so dominated by economy, 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 making money. Can we make more money? Where are we getting energy from? So much focus there. And as we're focused outwards on acquisition, on consumption, acquisition and consumption, the ideal seems to be more is always better. More is always better. Where for, for an individual household, if you can move from 40,000 to 80,000, that's good. 80,000 to 800,000, that's really good. 800,000 to 8 million, oh, now you should be so happy. you know. So, more is better. And that goes for an individual household, it goes for the country. How can we improve the gross domestic product? How can we get you know, the iPhone 7? It's just a twinkling in somebody's eye at this point, I'm sure. But you know, I think 5 is coming out soon. But once you have five, you're just wondering, you know, the salivary glands start, oh, what's six going to be like? It's going to be so much better than five. It'll probably make me a lot happier. This little thing is almost disgusting because it's only a three. It's not even a three S. So it's more like a paperweight. 
I'm kind of ashamed of it, but you know, I had to confess that. And so this sense of outward progress, insatiable outward progress, progress, progress. And at the same time, the flow of modernity is be satisfied with sheer mediocrity when it comes to your own heart and your own mind. The level of your attention, the clarity of mindfulness, how happy you are inwardly when you're not being bombarded by stimuli, the level of neuroses, the level of distress, of agitation, restless, boredom, anxiety, grumpiness, ill will, selfishness, pettiness. Well, after all, you're really only human, so what did you expect? You know? And so the notion is, you know, don't don't elevate your, your sight too much. Because you're only human. But the iPhone 5 is coming out in the fall. And that you might be able to afford. You know? And so there's one orientation. And I think what I've just said is actually characteristic of a lot of modernity, East and West, if that means anything at all anymore. And the orientation of Dharma is exactly the opposite. The one of the great phrases that I, mem I memorized when I was a monk, in Tibetan, and that is, it's a monastic ideal, and that is being content with merely what is adequate. Do you have enough clothes to keep you warm? Do you have adequate shelter? Do you have adequate medical care and food? Is it enough? Good, okay, that's finished. And now, and now the whole focus goes elsewhere. It goes to Dharma. So the hedonic well-being, taking care of our material needs, very important, that you have enough. But as soon as you have enough, then you say, ah, the not, now it's freedom. Now it's like, what a relief. Now I can focus on the whole meaning of life, and that is the cultivation of genuine happiness. And there we have great beings such as Tsongkhaba, the great Tibetan master, saying, when it comes to Dharma, be insatiable. Insatiable. In terms of your quest for greater understanding, deeper compassion, greater samadhi, greater qualities of all kinds. Oh, just be insatiable. Never be satisfied. Never be satisfied. So in other words, it takes it 180 degrees. Just the opposite. If the flow of modernity is going that way, the flow of Dharma is like way the opposite direction. So here we are. So, enough of talking about the practice. I'd like to jump right into it. We'll have four questions. You'll see what the other four are. But it's really inviting to go on a type of vision quest, to use a somewhat cliched term, a quest in terms of your vision, your own vision, of what it means for you to flourish. And as in this first day of our retreat, uh, it is so often said, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, that at the outset of any meaningful endeavor, establish the most meaningful motivation you possibly can. So this, this, this session, which will be like pretty much all the others, will be 24 minutes, uh, we can look at this on the one hand as being cultivation of loving-kindness, but also as if you're setting out on an ocean, ocean voyage with your maps, your charts, and you're setting your navigation, you know, you're, you're plotting your course. Where, where are you bound? You're going for Johannesburg, for Tahiti. Where are you going? So you, as soon as you step out of the harbor, you slip out of the harbor, you already must know where you're going. You're not just going someplace out there in the ocean, but you have a real direction to it. And so, as you bring forth these visions that I'll share with you, that is, invite you to pursue, and then you pursue it for yourself, you may set that also as like setting the navigation for the next eight weeks of the time we're spending together here in meditation. What are you here for? Why did you come from such a distance to meditate here? What, what, what did you have in mind? And how meaningful can you make this endeavor by, by making your motivation as meaningful as you possibly can? So, we'll try to do both at once.
cultivate loving kindness for ourselves, and also just establish the most meaningful motivation we can for the next eight weeks. So, please find a comfortable position. As soon as you hear the bell ring, you may take this as an invitation to let your awareness settle into and permeate the field of your body. As you set your body at ease in stillness and in vigilance, thereby settling it in its natural state. Settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, allowing the in and out flow of the breath to occur as naturally, as effortlessly as possible. Releasing all control. Set your mind at ease for this short session, releasing your concerns, your hopes and fears about the future and the past, settling your awareness and stillness in the present moment. And for a little while, mindfully and clearly attend to the sensations of the breath, of the respiration, wherever they most distinctly manifest throughout the body. way settle your mind, relaxed, still, and clear.
Now let's move into a more active, more dynamic mode of awareness. Begin drawing on our imagination, intelligence and memory. I invite you to adopt the question, set out on a quest, so to speak. The question is, what is your vision of your own flourishing? What would make you truly happy, fulfilled, imbue your life with a sense of meaning and satisfaction? What is your heart's desire? Take into consideration your more mundane or hedonic needs. But also expand your vision, extend your imagination. By bringing to mind what would bring you a true sense of meaning and satisfaction from within. each out-breath, as you continue to let your respiration flow effortlessly, without constraint, with each out-breath arouse the yearning, the aspiration, may I be truly well and happy. May I realize my heart's desire. With each out-breath, let your imagination play. Imagine moving from the realm of actuality, what is already will, into the realm of possibility, the realm of what may become will. And imagine breath by breath, realizing here and now the fulfillment of your heart's desire.
in order to realize the happiness and fulfillment that we see. Clearly we cannot do this entirely on our own. We must rely upon those around us, upon our natural environment. So I invite you to raise a second question. What would you love to receive from the world around you? From those who are near and far? From the natural environment? What would you love to receive from the world around you? to enable you to realize the happiness and well-being that you seek. And with each in-breath, arouse this aspiration of loving-kindness for yourself. The wish may I receive all that I truly need from the world around in order to realize the fulfillment that is my heart's desire. Once again, letting your imagination play with each in-breath. Imagine all that you truly need flowing in from all sides. Imagine reality rising up to meet you. And providing all that you need from outside. To realize genuine happiness.
clearly in order to realize such well-being. It's not enough. It will never be enough. Simply to receive the aid, the blessings of others. There must be inner transformation. A spiritual evolution, if you like. So now in this same spirit of loving kindness, wishing yourself well, raise a third question. In order to realize such well-being, from what qualities would you love to be free? Those qualities that impede your well-being, that create distress. And from what qualities, or with what qualities, would you love to be imbued, to be richly endowed? Those qualities that aid you in your pursuit of happiness. How would you love to transform, evolve, grow as a human being? With each out-breath, once again moving into the realm of possibility, as if you were breathing life into this vision. With each out-breath arouse the yearning. May I so transform so mature in spiritual practice. I may find the fulfillment that I seek. With each out-breath, imagine transforming as you would love to transform, becoming the person you would love to become.
I invite you to direct your attention to a fourth and final question. And that is, in order to imbue your life with the greatest possible meaning, the greatest sense of fulfillment and satisfaction, what would you love to offer to the world around you? To those who are near and far, over the short term and the long term, to the natural environment itself. What would you love to offer to the world such that when you come to the end of this life, when you look back, you do so with a sense of satisfaction, of contentment, knowing this life was well led. And you're bringing it to a happy close. What would you love to offer to the world? And with each outbreath arouse this loving aspiration. May it be so. May I offer my very best to the world around. And with each outbreath, letting your imagination play. Imagine here and now. Offering your very best.
and for just a short time, release all appearances, all objects of the mind, and release all aspirations. And let your awareness simply come to rest in the present moment, resting in, resting in the awareness of your own awareness. I'd like to make just a few comments about the morning practice. Then we can just open this up for discussion. And if there isn't much, we don't have to stay here. We can take an early break. But in terms of this initial venturing into the practice of shamatha that we did this morning, there's a very interesting dynamic that takes place here. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, know that the, in a larger perspective, what's Buddhist meditation about? There's a sequence of shamatha, there's vipassana, insight practice. So whether it's Zen, whether it's Chan, whether it's vipassana, in the Theravada tradition, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, very strong emphasis, very central theme throughout all schools of Buddhism to realize the very absence of some discrete, individuated, autonomous self that is radically separate from everyone else and the world at large. So, identitylessness, selflessness. And in that realization, experiencing this kind of like, well, like a supernova of freedom, just and a sense of relief, enormous. Because so many troubles all emerge from this kind of distorted, this delusional, this toxic coagulation of a sense of self. It's almost like a seizure like a psychological seizure of contraction in. And my hands always do that. I don't really tell them what to do. So they do their thing. Whenever I go into that mode, they always go into a fist. Double fist means really. You know? It's always that contraction. You see, it's all rough on the outside. and the, But it's rough on the inside too. It's all rough. There's no smooth part of this. There's no softness. There's nothing good for oneself. The tighter I do it, it just hurts my palms. But the tighter I do it, it just makes these these knuckles all the more nasty. So, to realize if this in fact is true, that there is no such autonomous ego, self, identity, someone in here who's really separate, who has a body and has a mind as, and as is in charge of them. Here's an interesting dynamic. And that is when we are vulnerable to when we're prey to, when we get caught in the grip of our emotions, our desires, wandering thoughts, and so forth, it's hard to imagine there being an independent self when it's just at the whim 
of the various permutations, the ebb and flow of the mind. How can you realistically think that you're somehow separate and in charge of the mind when it's so obvious that you're not? That your mind is dominating you. You are the slave. Your mind is the master. Right? And in the practice of shamatha, then, we try to, to invert that 180 degrees. That we are no longer the victim of our own minds. Our desires, emotions, mental wandering, fixations, ruminations, all of that stuff. At Tsongkhapa says, before you achieve shamatha, until you achieve shamatha, you don't really have a mind. The mind has you. And they achieve shamatha and says, now you've achieved mind. Now you've got a mind. It's good. Mind could be useful. I imagine. Could be used good for something. Right? But there's this whole trajectory of the practice of shamatha. It's very clearly a matter of gaining mastery over your own mind. So that when you wish to direct it to the cultivation of loving kindness for 24 minutes, you actually cultivate loving kindness for 24 minutes. Novel idea. When you want to eat mindfully, you're doing that mindfully. When you want to go into a creative mode, compose some music, you compose music. And so forth. So what is this practice of shamatha if it's not developing mastery over the mind so that you really are cultivating these qualities of relaxation, of stability, of clarity. You can direct your attention where you will. In an imaginative mode, in visualizing mode, in a clear to still, clear witnessing mode. And out of that, wouldn't there necessarily come a sense, finally, I have a mind. Finally, I'm in charge of my mind. Someone's really in charge. And it's me. I say, mind, jump. And it says, how far? You know? And so isn't this, in a way, the shamatha, isn't it now actually cultivating a sense of, I have a mind. And, moreover, I've got a body, too. I say, left hand, go up. Good. You can go down now. Oh, boy, I do accept. No. The hand, I got that one down. If I can just now master the mind, like I can hand master the hand going up and down, I'll be in good shape. And then I'll really have a body and have a mind, and I can do with them what I like. So how is this practice of shamatha not then reinforcing a delusion that was kind of huffing and puffing and grunting and struggling I think I have a mind. I think I have a mind. I think I have... Well, I don't think I have a mind. You know? And then you achieve shamatha. Now I know I've got a mind. So how is shamatha not simply kind of a reinforcement, a crystallization, a reinforcement of the delusion of I am someone really in here who's got in charge of my mind? Well, it's a very interesting balance. The entry point this morning is really critical. And that is it begins with this very strong emphasis, overwhelming emphasis on releasing. Releasing. Releasing tension in the body. That's good. That's a good start. Right? And then, as you just settle the whole body at ease, especially the corpse position, that's about one of the least egotistical poses I know. How can you be really arrogant and be lying flat on your back? Look at me. I'm something special. <laughs> That's a hard sell. If you sit like this, oh, maybe. Especially if you're young and handsome like Nick. Oh, a geezer like me is not so impressive. 
But but when you're flat on your back, that's just not very impressive at all. I mean, corpses can do it. How difficult can it be? You know? So it doesn't do much to reinforce the sense of self. You're not even controlling your body. You're letting your body just go into total meltdown. As totally relaxed as you possibly can. And so there you are. That's why that supine position is very good. I would strongly encourage you. Really experiment with supine. And many of you may say, oh, but whenever I go supine, lying on your back, face up, I get dull. I have a response to that. Get over it. Get over it. It's just a habit. That for now, until now, unless you've already been cultivating this ability, uh, whenever you lie on your back, it's to snooze, it's to relax, it's to watch television, it's to daydream. And so it's a strong association. That's all it is. It's just an association. So I would strongly suggest that when you go into this posture, you very, very formally adopt the Shavasana, the corpse position. And in fact, I'll describe it just briefly. Your body is straight as an arrow. That is the point between your two heels. Your, your navel, your sternum, your nose, straight line. Legs out straight. Feet dropping to the side. Arms out to the side. If there's enough room, about 30 degrees out. Palms up. Nice pillow under your head, and then just melt. Total release. That's it. Physical posture is quite easy. So, rather than reaffirming or reinforcing a sense of, I've got a body, I'm in charge of my body, I'm controlling my body, it's a complete release of control. Right? And then we go to the breathing. The breathing, as I think you will discover over the coming days, weeks, Quite subtle. That is, the challenge here is quite subtle. The point here is that, habitually, if we attend closely to something that we can control, or at least influence, we do. It comes with the territory. We do, because we want happiness, we want, be, we want to be free of suffering. So if I'm attending to something, and I think maybe it'll give me some happiness, uh, he's smiling, that makes me happy. So I influenced I influenced, yeah? I wanted to smile. And it did. That makes me happy. You know? So I was attending closely to the mark, hoping maybe it smiled. And he did. I got some gratification. So there it is, you know, we attend closely and if we can control, we tend to want to nudge it this way or that way or just flat out take control. You know? Get that smile going. You know? To attend so closely to the breath, which is so ever so easy to influence and not influence it. That's subtle. That's subtle. To release even your preferences, even your expectations, your thought, the breath should be going rhythmically. I think the breath should be shallow. The breath should be subtle. I think great yogis hardly breathe at all. Maybe I should try that. You know? <laughs> to have these preconceptions of what the body should be doing, how the breath should flow, and then kind of, when nobody's looking, be a yogic breath. Come on, I'm sure you can do it. It's very difficult to attend so closely to the breath and not have your attention itself already begin to modify it. And that is the challenge. To breathe egolessly. To breathe, as I said this morning, as if you were deep asleep. And that is breathing egolessly. But of course, for most people, oh, hell, easily, most people, when you're deep asleep in stage four non-REM sleep, so totally knocked out, your breathing is flowing, your breathing, I'm, I'm convinced, the type of breathing that flows while you're deep asleep is the most restorative, rejuvenating, helpful breath you'll have in a 24-hour period. 
Why is it that you can go to bed at 11 o'clock and wake up at 7 o'clock and feel fresh, whereas at 11 o'clock you felt like something the cat dragged up? You know? I think the breathing must be playing a very important role. You know? Clearly, it's not enough just to lie in bed, because we've all laid in bed, awake, and then feel completely wasted the next morning if we didn't sleep. And there you are, just going, and not getting rested. So, the breathing flows without interference when we're deep asleep, but of course then we're not attending to it. So, the real essential theme from this morning's practice, it's a balancing act. There's always, shamatha is always a balancing act. So I'd really encourage you to remember this. It's simple. And it is such an important entry into the practice of shamatha. It's really important. In fact, I'll, I'll now quote the Dalai Lama when he was asked in 1989, right after he learned that he'd won the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize, a journalist asked him, can you achieve enlightenment without having a guru? Is it necessary to have a guru to achieve enlightenment? That was the question. Remember the answer? He said, no. But I can save you a lot of time. Okay? So that's all I'm here for. I'm not here coming as a guru. Not as your guru. But, you know, with or without labels, who cares? If I can save you some time, then that's really worthwhile. And so this can save you some time. As you make your entry into shamatha, do so with a sense of release and do so embracing this theme of balance and that is releasing in your body, just melting in your body, releasing the breath, relinquishing all control over the breath as if you were deep asleep releasing the mind, setting your mind at ease, releasing all of the energy behind rumination, getting stuck in old repeated thoughts, stuck in anxiety, thoughts about the future, hopes and fears about the future. Release, set your mind at ease in comfort and looseness. So on the one hand, just release a body, speech, breath, mind, release, release and release. And then where's the balance? That's not balance. That's just release. And the release is, note the degree of clarity, the alertness, the vigilance that you had at the beginning of the session, probably what you have more or less right now, and don't lose that. Don't, as you're going into deeper, deeper relaxation, then have a corresponding slip into greater and greater dullness. So main flatline. Don't try to develop greater vividness, not from the beginning. Manana, manana. Much later in the practice. But maintain the clarity you have. Just the beginning. Just be satisfied with that. But, in terms of the deepening sense of ease, of looseness, of relaxation, oh, just keep on going. For the big picture, if we consider not just the practice of shamatha, how about the five paths and the ten bhumis, the great big picture of the path to enlightenment culminating in perfect Buddhahood? What is the nature of a Buddhist quality? What is the nature of a Buddhist activity? How much effort is needed? How much? None. So the Buddha is more active than any being in the universe, any other being in the universe, manifesting so many different ways. It's so, just myriad of activities. More active than, oh, the head of Google. Really active. <laughs> and it's effortless. It's spontaneous and effortless. Right? In other words, where we're starting today culminates only in Buddhahood. Because only a Buddha is really relaxed. So maybe there should be seven perfections. The first one, the perfection of relaxation, or that could be the seventh one, the culmination, what comes after the perfection of wisdom is, ah, 
masuka. Now I can relax. And for as long as space remains and as for long as sentient beings remain, so long may I remain to alleviate the suffering of the world. So boundlessly active and absolutely at rest. So as at the end, so at the beginning. Deepening sense of relaxation. Never being satisfied. Okay, I'm relaxed. Now let's get on with it. No, it goes all the way through shamatha. It goes through vipassana. It goes through dzogchen. It goes through all the way through. It's a deepening sense of relaxation. And so there it is. There's the challenge. Deepening sense of relaxation. Overwhelming emphasis on that. And just don't lose the clarity with which you began. That's it. And we see that the breathing itself is egoless. That is, although you have the ability to control the breath to a considerable extent, you're releasing the sense of, I am the controller, as much as you can. You're even releasing the sense, I am the breather. Making yourself dormant. That sense of I am, I am. Just let it go dormant. And let the body do what it's so good at doing without interference. Breathing. Just let the breath flow. Flowing out, flowing in. And be vigilant, clear, but passive, inactive, not meddling with the breath. So breathe egolessly. And then we move in with the mind and very gently, with a sense of ease and looseness, let your awareness descend into the body and just be present. Just be aware of the sensations rising up to meet you. So we'll see in this simple practice, settling body, speech, and mind in a natural state, attending to the sensations of the breath throughout the body, that we are now doing very little. Very little. Okay? And in that doing, in that not doing of a whole lot, we're not doing a whole lot of things that throw the whole system out of balance give rise to mental afflictions and all other kinds of disturbances. So, shamat on the whole, starting with session one, is increasingly an endeavor of doing less and less and less. And already, in just sitting quietly or lying quietly and being attentive to, being mindful of the sensations of the breath, that's not doing an awful lot. And it's doing just a little bit. That's it. So that's a bit of introduction to this morning's practice. I think that's enough for now. Any questions or comments, insights pertaining to today's, today's practice? And if not, we can, take a, we can take a break. We don't have to stay here until 6. Yes, Kay. And so I said, Kay, but every hand goes up. Please say your first name, because I think certainly I haven't memorized everybody's yet. And to help everybody learn everybody's name, Hand goes up. When I call on you, please to say your first name and then proceed. And thank you, Diego, over here to Kay. Uh, Diego, is the uh, recording, does it seem to be going well? Are we, uh, the podcast getting launched? Okay, but, but the recording is done, yes? Okay, that's good. That's most important. Kay, what's on your mind? Well, this is a fairly general question about uh, discomfort during during any meditation and yeah. just allowing it to be instead of trying to fix it all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, now, in my first su- supine meditation today, the, in the first session, I was alternating between sitting and supine uh-huh. yeah, every, you know, every tw- 24 good. minutes. And in the first one, I um, took the position you said, I've 
always had problems with it because my can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Oh, because but you my, might want to point the, as if oh, you're like this, you're like a lollipop. Oh, oh, rock star. <laughs> anyway, so I have a a, a very minor uh, deformation in my elbows yeah. where they don't lie flat. Right. And I've never been able to put them out comfortably with the palms up. Palms down is different, but mm -hmm. uh, but I decided I was just going to. Uh, do it because yeah. when I'm dying, there's going to be discomfort, so I might as well get used to it. That's <laughs> <laughs> a good uh, what's it, grin and bear it kind of an attitude. Okay. And I mean, you know, it's not it's not terribly, but my yeah. my arms went completely numb. Uh huh. And uh, so you know, I'm I the, in my second the in the second session, I decided to put my hands on my stomach. Uh huh. Uh, and feel the breathing, and I'm, I know that, uh, well, I'm just asking about these general sure. experiments no, with, with posture and how, you know, not to, not to be a sissy, and yeah, yet, I, I hate sissies, and, and yet, not <laughs> so anyway, that's, do you get the gist of my general, I mean, I don't think we're intended to hurt ourselves, but we're also... Now you've given it away. That was that was the next phase. Mm -hmm. Okay, I give a serious answer. Um, for the practice of vipassana, especially when is applying the closely applying mindfulness to feelings, then if discomfort arises in the body, discomfort, distress arises in the mind. You don't say, "Oh no," and, and run for the hills. You don't try to simply avoid. In fact, one is embracing what the Buddha said about the first noble truth: the reality of suffering. He said, here's the reality of suffering. Recognize it. Rather than simply trying to run from it, anesthetize it, suppress it, avoid it, tend to it. It's real. Look at it. Okay. So there's a lot to be said for that. To face distress in the face. In shamatha, not. In shamatha, dis uh, physical discomfort is simply a distraction. And I would encourage you to avoid it as much as you possibly can. It's not helpful. It's just a distraction. Right? So, uh, everybody has a unique body here. Some of us a little bit anomalous, anomalous bodies. And some a bit more, I guess they're called, called normal. But we want to adapt to the anomalies of our bodies. And the anomalies tend to get a bit stronger as we get older also. right? <laughs> and so, what number one, is this a big deal? Palms up, palms down. Well, you have a lower rebirth if you have palms down. <laughs> Maybe, but I wouldn't lose any sleep over that one. You know, I think it'll be okay. And so if you find the problem is alleviated just by having the palms down, for heaven's sake, go palms down. I, I, I was taught very strictly, very with a lot of precision, the Shavasana, the bunch of other asanas, by having quite some intensive training with Iyengar back in spring of 1981. I was in his ashram for two and a half months, five hours a day practicing yoga. And he was extremely precise, and that's where he taught Shavasana. And he certainly is a genius. He's brilliant in terms of the nuances of these wide, wide array, wide array of asanas. So I'm very grateful for what I receive from him. At the same time, for, for shamatha, physical distress is simply a distraction. So what I would suggest there is don't make a big deal about from palms up, palms down. And then you can also start to experiment. How about a how about a well placed pillow? You know, the body really should be relaxed. If it's it's if it's kind of it's kind of like if the, when the body is in distress, it's kind of like a whining child, you know. 
It's kind of and you really don't need that, you know. As much as your your body can be loose, relaxed, comfortable, let it be so. Right? So one friend of mine, also an older gentleman, that means older than me. Um, he had problems with his body, back and so forth, and he could not be comfortable in supine position, but he couldn't be comfortable, and he was very, very serious about his meditation. He was on a three-month retreat with me, and he, you know, very, very intent. He was practicing seven, eight hours a day, something like that. He couldn't be comfortable on a chair. He couldn't be comfortable sitting, sitting cross-legged, and then he couldn't be comfortable lying on his back either. So, he did the sensible thing. He found a, a type of chair, it's called, and I won't give the brand name, but a kind of chair that, how do we say, yields to the contours of the body, and so it very evenly distributes the weight of the body over the, the kind of the shape of the chair, and there he could relax, and then he had a very good practice. So he brought this chair to every retreat he ever attended with me. A lot of week-long retreats, the three-month retreat, always brought his chair. So while everybody's sitting like this, he's looked like, you know, like, 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 like he's sitting on a beach about to sip a pina colada. You know. <laughs> you know? But that's cool. Because that's what worked for him. So there are a few things, like the spine being straight. That's important. I mean, the middle of the hip like that, unless one has a radical curvature of the spine, not good. The spine straight, this is good. Now, here's one point, and that is, the spine should not only be straight, it shouldn't be uptight, but also there should be no, how do you say, there should be no pressure on the abdomen. So this is why I said, if you're sitting up, a slight elevation of the sternum, so not like this. This is not good. Because I can, I can already feel that when I breathe in, there's some kind of a pressure, you know, a concavity. So like that, no good. Like that, no head down, no good, right? And so, generally speaking, a nice straight axis of the, of the neck, with the natural curves of the neck, the spine, the lower spine, and so forth. But this slight elevation of the sternum, pretty much like that, such that, again, when you breathe in, keeping the, the belly nice and soft, jelly belly, jelly belly whether you're skinny or you're heavy, whatever, jelly belly. And the belly comes out when you breathe in. Okay? So, short answer, physical distress is simply a nuisance and avoid it as much as you can in shamatha practice. It's also not helpful for loving kindness, compassion, empathetic, joy, equanimity. Physical, it's just a distraction. Right? So I, I would say there are other practices for which really bearing some physical discomfort is part of the practice. That's true. Likewise in yoga, there's sometimes, well, really stretch, okay? Push that extra. If you're working out and so forth, swimming, go that extra hundred yards, that extra hundred meters. Good, good, good. But the shamatha physical stress is simply not helpful. We have enough to deal with. Because I was speaking this morning about overexertion, too much striving. Again, my hand just goes immediately into that mudra, pom pom, pounding away at shamatha that this overexertion, too much striving, goal-oriented, ego-driven effort is the cause of at least 90% of the problems that arise in meditation. Having said that, in really very well-balanced, intelligently guided and implemented shamatha practice, when you're doing it, especially for 6, 7, 8, 10, 12 hours a day, it should be dredging the psyche. Here you are in an environment, your own room, where there's so little stimulation, so little things outside stimulation to get the mind to be carried away and to lose our minds, then emotions, memories, desires start getting dredged up. And some of them can be quite painful. Fear can arise. All kinds of things can arise. These are not problems. These are not things to be avoided. This is the natural dredging, the exploration 
of what lies there in the depths of our own awareness. So when that comes up, that's very much part of the practice. And then dealing with it intelligently and wisely, that's very much part of the practice. That will, in terms of not being a sissy, well, be a not sissy for that. You know, be bold, be courageous, be attentive, be strong as you're attending to whatever's coming up and being present with it intelligently. You'll have plenty, in terms of your machisma, you'll have plenty to deal with just dealing with the stuff churned up by the mind rather than having to compound that also with distress in the body. Okay? And then add to that some good physical exercise that's appropriate for your body, proper diet, then we have a good formula. Okay? A very good question. And I'm glad you asked it today. Because we can... You know, when I went into my first retreat, my first shamatha retreat, 1980, under the direct guidance of His Holiness, I was 30 years old, I was in really good health, and just brimming over with enthusiasm. I mean, really, I was like almost explode. Because I'd had now 10 years of training, I had some pretty good theoretical background, I had marvelous teachers, and I've got this holiness, Dalai Lama as my teacher. I mean, what more could you want? You know. So I said, you know, my feeling was shamatha or bust. You know, I'm going to crack this baby. I'm going to nail it. You know, good American Californian pioneer attitude. Shamato or bust. You know? And I really pushed. I really pushed hard. It didn't help. It was not helpful. I got a false facsimile of stability that you get by sheer effort. And I could sustain it. I thought I was doing pretty well. But it was sheer muscular effort. Really powerful will, willpower. Real powerful willpower. And over the long term, as the months go by, just exhausting. Just exhausting. So I had to learn that way. But I might have been the first Californian his, ever, his holiness ever taught you know, in, a, in a pretty intensive retreat. So I was bringing some really weird, some weirdness that perhaps he had not encountered before. I don't know. Good. Very practical question. Anything else coming up? Yes. I know your name, but I'm glad you say it. Yeah, yeah. Mine is not a very practical... Oh, your name first. Oh, Rosa. 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 <laughs> and as if you're... That's okay. You. There we go. There you go. You got it. Uh, mine is not a very practical question. Okay. Kind of embarrassed of asking, <laughs> but since nobody raised their hand. Uh, what does a Buddha do? What does a Buddha do? That's a good question. Nothing? From one perspective? When your mind dissolves into primordial consciousness, which is none other than Dharmakaya, also called pristine awareness, called Buddha nature, a characteristic of, let's call it Buddha nature, no, I like pristine awareness, Rikpa, a characteristic of dwelling in Rikpa is Jame Jadel, in Tibetan. Free of activity. Activity less. And Jajel, free of activity. It's utter and absolute stillness. Because resting in that mode of awareness, you're beyond the three times. It's called the Dujiba. You're resting in the fourth time. Beyond past, present, and future. You're not caught up in the flow of from here to there. Over a trajectory, the arrow of time. You're not there. So you're beyond time. If you're on beyond time, 
then you're beyond change, beyond change, you're beyond doing this versus doing that, on the one hand. Right? So that's where the Buddha's mind dwells, in the state of utter, inconceivable, and transcendent inactivity, not doing anything. But out of that spontaneously, it's called Hlungidupa. And my, I've thought a lot about translation. And I think the best translation that I, I can come up with is spontaneously actualized. Because Dupa doesn't, it's not, it's often translated as spontaneous presence. But Dupa doesn't mean presence. It doesn't mean that. It means something is accomplished, something is done, something is actualized. And Hlungi is spontaneous. And so, out of this primordial stillness, this transcendent, inconceivable stillness of Dharmakaya, there's this spontaneous emergence, effortless, unpremeditated, spontaneous displays of appearances. Sambhogakaya, very rarefied, very subtle manifestation of Buddha in form. And then the types of forms of the Buddha that we mere mortals, the ordinary people, can, can, may encounter, people like Buddha Shakyamuni and so forth, where they appear to us and they perform many deeds in the world. But the amount of effort that's required, the amount of activity required from the side of Dharmakaya, I imagine is about the same amount of activity exerted by the moon when reflections of the moon appear in a thousand or a million pools of water. And if you looked at any one of those pools of water and you looked right in the still, limpid, clear pool of water and you looked at that reflection of the moon, you'd see that's, that's almost as bright as the moon itself. It really is a source of illumination. You can get a little photometer out there. So, oh, click, 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 click. Getting some real, getting some moonbeams here. Right? From the reflection in the water. Right? So it's really doing something. You can photograph it. It has causal efficacy, that reflection. Right? But how much more energy is required from the side of the moon if, if, it's, if, if its reflections appear in ten pools of water as opposed to ten million? How, what's the difference from the side of the moon? Right? If there's a lot more illumination. If, the, if 10 million reflections, that's a lot. Only 10 pools, that's, that's not much. Right? So it's a lot more. But from the side of the moon, of course, no difference at all. So, what does the Buddha do? Spontaneously manifesting in extremely subtle forms, in gross forms, in all kinds of forms, as human and non-human. The Buddha, the from this inconceivable dimension of Dharmakaya, effortlessly, spontaneously are activated, emerge, flow forth activities of all kinds to, with one motivation, the Buddha's job description is very simple. Once you're a Buddha, you have a very simple job description. And it is to alleviate the suffering of all beings and to bring each one to perfect awakening. So your job will not be finished until every sentient being is awake. So that all that can be done is all flowing spontaneously. Now, how much is received? Well, that's up to individual sentient beings. Some are more receptive, some less. Right? So, for some of us, it's like the, the Buddha is a mama, like a mother, a very loving mother. And she got a spoonful of some really yummy cream peaches. Cream peaches. It's really good. And trying to bring the spoon to the baby. And the baby's When it comes to the Buddha's blessings, the Buddha is the mama, and we're going, I'm too busy. I'm too, I want to be happy. So, 
The spoon's coming, but we're not receiving that much. But it's not because that wonderful, how do you say, cream peaches is not tasty, or there's no motivation. It's all there. But how much we receive, that's up to us. Okay? So the Buddha does everything that can possibly be done, and does nothing at all. Simultaneously. So. Very silly, isn't it? <laughs> Yes. And how can we forget forget your name? But go ahead and remind us anyway. I am free. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next. <laughs> if you're free, you don't get angry. <laughs> this question is a good question, and I okay. just had a follow-up on it in terms of what you accept, what kind of gross forms do you think that manifests from Buddhas? Because this is very hard to conceive of even Shakyamuni Buddha there's diversity of view as to whether or not uh, he was a Buddha when he was born etc between the sure, two schools there's a lot of discussion about but, that. but even beyond that <coughs> except that one like there's talk of Buddhas appearing as you know rocks and blah 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 sure, but sure. it doesn't seem very easy to um, accept and to sort of understand particularly if it's a sentient being like a, a lama or something if you take right. that person literally as a Buddha rather than as sure. a sort of guru um, what's your particular perspective on that? <laughs> I don't think I have a perspective. Um, certainly, there's no question that this 2,500-year-old tradition that has become so diversely assimilated in so many radically different cultures, from Afghanistan to Korea, Sri Lanka to Mongolia, and everything in between, that's a lot of variety. The whole notion of, and I'm sure you don't have the notion, but the notion of the East is somehow monolithic, like East is one place, well, not even remotely true, right? And so, through this differentiation, this evolution, this assimilation of the Buddhist teachings, and not just something that was written down 2,500 years ago, but this ongoing flow of fresh insights coming in, realizations coming in, visionary experiences taking place, and so forth. So, the simple point here is, of course, there are different perspectives on the nature of a Buddha. Was he born as a Buddha? Once he became a Buddha, what, what did that mean? What was the extent of his awareness? How much did he know? How much could he do? It's not like they just a whole bunch of different opinions. So if you could ask, if you ask, I think any tradition of Buddhism, can the Buddha simply wash away your karma? The answer is no. There's agreement on that. Oh yeah, but, oh yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll wash you. I got some really good Buddha soap here. I'll just give you a little scrub down. You know? No, the Buddha is very clear on that. So are there differences? Of course. So when I was responding to Rose's question. I was responding out of the, generally speaking, out of the Mahayana perspective, and then a bit more specifically going to Vajrayana and Dzogchen. And so, if I have perspective, it's not my perspective, but it is a perspective that long preceded me, and one for which there's a real attunement in terms of my own heart, my own intuition, so I'm speaking from that. But it's not mine. This would be like a little ant crawling up Mount Everest and saying, this is my mountain. In a manner of speaking, okay, you can say that. But the mountain was there a long time before the ant came. So what's your perspective, little ant? So it's kind of like that. So, adopting a certain view or perspective in this regard is not really necessary when we enter into the practice. Be happy, be relaxed. Practice shamatha. I, I feel quite passionately that as we're setting out on, on a path, and not simply doing a practice here and a practice there, 
but having a sense that we're now venturing onto a path that doesn't keep on repeating itself, but actually is moving. Eventually moving to a point of irreversibility. You know, in that regard. If one has such a vision of the path, and this was instilled in me, inspired in me, almost 40 years ago, by the first Lama from whom I re- received really sustained and very detailed teachings, and that was Geshe Maon Taike. Dharamsala, 1971, 72, 73. Uh, but the whole notion of path, really, it was like an arrow that just pierced my heart. Happily, an arrow of bliss. Like, oh. Not just doing some practices here and there, and I've got a rounded practice, and I'm practicing Dharma. That's all good. But the notion that your practice could actually lead to some true evolution, transformation that at, when you hit a tipping point becomes irreversible. That, that really caught my attention. So, with that in mind, my strong sense, now this is my opinion, not everybody's opinion, but my strong opinion is, as we set out, set out from a, a how do you say, a point of departure, of confidence, of confidence. And that is whatever view or belief you might have about what is the array of ways in a Buddha in which a Buddha might appear. To what extent is the Buddha's, what is the extent of the Buddha's knowledge? What is the extent of a Buddha's power? And so forth. Uh, did the Buddha, was he terminated after 45 years of teaching? Was that it? Like three, as I heard this only to speak about this just recently. According to the Theravada tradition, the Mahayana tradition, the Buddha practiced for three countless eons, which Suffice that to say, it's a really long time. Finite, but really long. You know, cosmic eons. Lots and lots. And then finally, they're manifestly becoming Buddha and teaching for 45, no more than 50 years. So there are many Buddhists that said, well, that's it. Light out. He's not doing anything for anybody anymore. He's now inconceivable. He taught for 45 years, made a big splash. So it's three countless eons of a drum roll, and then, da-da! <laughs> if you blinked, you'd miss it. I mean, 45 years in terms of human evolution. I mean, we're, we've been around for 100,000 years. Human species, right? 45 years? Blink. Gone. So that's one view. The Dalai Lama said, well, a bit anticlimactic. If you only wanted to teach for 45 years, how about work for one or 200 years? That would be more kind of even proportion, right? But three countless eons in 45 years seemed a little bit imbalanced. So the Mayan view, of course, is that the Buddha was not terminated, but rather, if we come back to the, the image that I shared with Rosa, it's like one pool in which the reflection of the moon was shining clearly, dried up. And where did the, where did the reflection go? It was there, right? You can look at it. And then it dries up. And where did that reflection go? Did it go up? Down? Did it withdraw into itself? Where did it go? Or did, is it still there invisible? Where did it go? It, it was there, and now it's not. Where did it go? Right? So, maybe it's the wrong question. So, Mahayana view, there is no form in which a Buddha may not manifest. The Dalai Lama, perhaps a little bit in jest, this was years ago, decades ago, he was already the issue of his next incarnation is coming up. And, of course, he said many, many times that for the Tibetan people, Tibetan society, 
if the institution of Dalai Lama is no longer needed, if it becomes adequated, a reliquary, something just like that, like a museum piece, because it's full democracy, then having Dalai Lama coming in as the head of the state is like no longer appropriate. And he said, in which case, the 14 is the final one. Don't, if we don't need any more, there won't be any more. And then the question came, but if you're not reincarnating as the Dalai Lama, then how are you reincarnating? He said, maybe as a meadow. <laughs> and so my point here is, you don't need to believe any of this. You know, I've been studying, practicing, like Amila and some others here for decades. So I have certain confidence. It comes from years of study, years of being with lamas, years of reflection, years of meditation. I have certain confidence. The fact that I have confidence doesn't mean that you should. Right. And so on this point, if you like to just leave it open and say, well, here's a question that makes a lot, a lot of sense to me. And that is, as we set out, let's imagine we're just starting Dharma today. In some ways, of course, we are. Here's a new fresh start. Better to be cultivating a sense of ease, stability, and clarity of attention, or better to be uptight, agitated, and dull? That's the first big question. So you might want to chew on that one for a while. Thank you. Let me continue a little tiny bit. and that is, But to my mind, that's kind of like, it doesn't need any salesmanship. If this can be developed, it should be developed. And then, can it be developed? Well, then that's for you to find out. Right? Other people can say, ah, ha, ha. And the scientists can say, we have papers, we have research, it can be done. But maybe you're a mutant. Maybe you're one of those people with a genetic aberration that no matter how much you meditate, it will never do any good at all. It could be. And the only way to find out is to meditate and see whether that's true. <laughs> you know? And then you'll know for yourself that you're not a mutant and that could come as a great source of relief. <laughs> and likewise for the four measures. Is it better to be mean and nasty and bitter or to be loving? To be cruel or compassionate? Aloof and indifferent or empathetic? And wildly gyrating between attachment and hostility or having an open and equally open heart? Well, again, it doesn't need any argument, right? But then we can say, yeah, but some people are more loving and I'm not one of those people. Some people are really compassionate, but I'm not. And so maybe, again, I'm a genetic mutant. And so are these qualities that can be, can be cultivated? I find it quite remarkable how rarely that question is even asked in psychology over the last hundred years. I mean, hey, this is not an Einstein question. This is not general relativity theory. This is like a virtue that everybody knows is a virtue, love and kindness, compassion. Can it be cultivated or not? There are hardly even any studies on compassion, let alone raising the further question, can it be cultivated? It's all very recent. It's kind of like millennial. I think all the good research is like no more than 10 years old. And it looks promising that maybe the Buddhists weren't fooling themselves for the last 2,500 years. And the Christians and the Sufis and so forth and so on. And so if we can point to this as a point of this is in the right direction, that's the question that really strikes me as being enormously important. Is this the right direction or not? Because direction is everything. Right? As you're setting your navigation charts, as you're just heading out of the harbor. What's the direction? This is a direction of greater deepening sense of ease, of looseness, even when the going gets tough, even when we face adversity and nasty people and, and all kinds of awful things. Having that sense of ease. Not sloppy, not dopey, but just not uptight. And a sense of inner composure, of collectiveness, of stillness, of stability, 
kind of an inner fortitude and a clarity. Good thing or bad thing. And then the open-heartedness. And so, to my mind, I cannot find a way to doubt the value, the goodness, the authenticity of such practices. And so I'm starting in my practice as I start practicing today with, I would say, 100% confidence. This is the right direction. Now, this direction goes to, it is said, the complete healing of the mind of all afflictive tendencies and all obscurations. What does that mean? People have different views. Because they have different views about things they don't know yet. Once you've tasted chocolate, what is your view of the difference between dark chocolate and milk chocolate? You don't have a view. It's just, you know, this is... I put it in my mouth. I know that's milk chocolate and that's dark chocolate. It's not a view. It's kind of like you know what you're talking about. Until you've tasted chocolate, you're going to have all kinds of views. And once you've tasted chocolate, the views are history. And then you know. So William James made this comment about philosophy. He said, given a certain topic, as long as we don't know about it, we have a philosophy of it. As soon as we know about it, there's no more philosophy of it. So, by the way, we do still have a philosophy of mind. You can make a living as a philosopher of mind. And they have all kinds of opinions. They agree on almost nothing. And that's because they haven't tasted chocolate. So, I wouldn't worry about it too much. But if the direction is sound, the culmination of the direction must be even better. That's why I come down. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I agree completely with what you're saying, and it's wow. partly why Easy I'm here. Yourself. Except for, um, it depends on yeah, the, the way you approach it. So if you approach it in the way you're just suggesting now, it's fine. I don't have any problem. No. That's why I'm still happily a Buddhist and trying to practice. Yeah. Um, but from a sort of more traditional structure, this issue comes up immediately in the refuge prayer, like to be become a Buddha to benefit all sentient beings. And then the question is, how does a Buddha do that? And, um, we don't know. That's you know, the simple that's, answer. We don't know. Yeah, so. Yeah. We'll know it when we've tasted the chocolate. You know? So sort of what sort of benefit are you aiming for? And that's where I, you know, when I contemplate this issue, it's, it's a rather tricky one. So I no, these are good thank questions. Rosa for the question. I was good, good I'm glad it came and up for me. Let's go back to one of my favorite phrases from very early Buddhism, that is the time of the Buddha. I'm trying to remember his name. It starts with a U, I think. There was one disciple of the Buddha. I think he had already become an arhat. And he was known for his extraordinary demeanor. He would inspire people just by the way he would walk. You know, he just had a tremendous presence. He was one of the Buddha's earliest disciples. And he was walking along, just walking, I think, off on his alms round. You might know the story already. And another seeker, the Shramana, one of these wandering ascetics, India had them all over the place at that time. Another seeker saw this, this monk walking, his alms bowl, and there was just, if we can imagine it, I love to imagine it, just such a presence, a serenity, a poise, an inner calm, almost like a glow of well-being as this monk just walked along the path. This other seeker saw him, and he just knew, whatever he's got, I want that. You know? Anybody who can walk like that, they must have found something really meaningful. And so he went over and, and, and accosted this monk, and I can't, I haven't memorized the passage in the suttas, but this is from the Pali Canon. And this Shramana, this, he asked this, he was an arhat, he said, friend, who is your teacher? Who is your teacher? What, what teaching do you follow? What's your tradition? And the monk's response was, I am, but I've, 
I've only newly ventured into the practice. I'm a beginner. I don't know that much. He recited one verse. I think I think it was in that case. Recited one verse, but when I'm really getting to, he said, I'm just a beginner. But just over yonder is the Buddha. So why don't you just bypass me and go directly to the Buddha? And then he came out with this little phrase, Ehipasi, come and see. Come and see. Radical pragmatism. Radical empiricism. He didn't say, first take refuge, or oh, my, my, Buddha, my, my teacher is omniscient, there are the three jewels, there are five skandhas, there are eight noble four paths, there are four noble truths. There are 52 mental factors, and you have to believe in all of them. And you have to pass an exam. There wasn't any of that. It was just come and see. Come and see. One of the most remarkable passages I saw in the Pali Canon, entirely different situation, was some individual came to the Buddha for guidance. Just that. He's suffering. And the Buddha was one who said to be free of suffering. So, it's like you're really sick. Go to a doctor who's not sick. You know? If you have TB and you go to a doctor who has TB, that's not very encouraging. Or you're, or you're mentally really screwed up and you go to a psychiatrist who's really screwed up. That's also not so encouraging. So he had heard the Buddha was awake, that he was free of suffering. He sought guidance. The Buddha gave him guidance. He gave him some meditation instruction. No strings attached. No, do you believe this, that, the other thing. He's just, here's teaching. Try it out. Ehipasi, come and see. So, the person was open enough to put the teachings into practice. And he gained direct realization of nirvana. Became a stream emperor. That's not arhat, but big step in the right direction. Direct realization of nirvana. After doing so, then he came back to the Buddha and said, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in his dhamma. I take refuge in the Sangha. He achieved realization first and became a Buddhist second. Because that's kind of the defining step of becoming a Buddhist, is taking refuge. But he did it after. Right? That's pretty sharp. So, we wouldn't worry about it too much. Take refuge in the Dharma. They say among the three jewels, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, the one that is the most immediate contact for refuge, that really does provide you with refuge, is the Dharma. And so, jump in. That's how it works. And that's it. And then, like a friendship, I really think of it this way. I really think of it this way. And that is, if you, I have friends, I know Anela's friends, probably other people here also. Some friends for 40 years. Anela's one of my friends for 40 years. I have a school teacher. I'm still in touch with her. When I was 13, she was my school teacher. Oh, very inspiring. I'm still in contact with her. Some people, but I haven't seen her much you know, for the last 40 years. Uh, but friends that you see as the years go by, then if the friendship deepens, and you see this friend, this other person, in a wide variety of circumstances. And you see this person really has integrity. Real, this radiant, solid gold integrity. Goodness of heart, honest. Right. Then a kind of trust arises. That if the first person tells you, last night I saw a UFO. If most people say that, you say, well, that's, that's nice. I'm kind of like, whatever, you know. But if this person has earned your trust over 40 years, you know this person is clear-minded, intelligent, absolute integrity. He said, I saw a UFO last night. It was really clear. He saw a UFO. You know? Because the person's earned your trust. 
And then, even though you've never seen a UFO, and most UFO sightings seem maybe a little bit bogus, a bit weird, this fellow, well, he's earned your trust. So then you take, he's earned your trust. And then you will take more of what he says. Not a confidence, not blind faith, but very earned confidence. So I had that sense with respect to the Buddha. That he's earned my trust. Who's the Buddha then? Which Buddha? Pali Canon Buddha, Mahayana Buddha, Dzogchen, Vajrayana, Chan Buddha? I don't know. The Buddha as he arises to me from the multiple teachings and traditions and lineages that I receive. But something forms there. It has coherence. It's not just a bunch of different views. It's earn my trust. So, see what happens. Wide open. On that note, enjoy a meal. And I must say, I think that was the quietest talkative lunch I've had at the beginning of one of these retreats. When I invite you to talk, and then our table was like a morgue. (laughs) When I impose silence, I think you probably won't even be chewing with So, enjoy your meal. You can talk if you like.